that the secret to health is actually in the relationship you have to yourself and your body, your environment, and the, those around you. And being able to take in information and act on that information and, and actually adapt to different demands. So whether it be environmental demands, whether it be work demands, relationship demands, or even physiological demands. For example, like bodies break down. How are you going to adapt to those breakdowns? Does your body have enough resources to bounce back? Do you have the capacity to change your behavior to optimize the chances of your body staying strong and healthy? I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health. And along the way, we have conversations with thought leaders about research-backed information so you can take your health into your own hands. This is a whole new level. Dr. Casey Means and Dr. Molly Malouf. If you follow the space of health and wellness, well, you're not a stranger to either of those names. For Dr. Molly, she's part of our advisory board. And so she and Casey sat down and talked about everything pertaining to health and wellness. It was a very wide conversation and they covered a range of topics. No need to wait. Here's Casey with the intro. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Casey Means, co-founder and chief medical officer of Levels. I am so excited about our guest today. It is Dr. Molly Malouf, and she is a Levels advisor. And she is just has innovation oozing out of, you know, every every cell in her body. She's so incredible. Um, what you need to know about Dr. Molly is that she was actually one of the first people really ever, this is like years ago, to understand and spread the message of continuous biofeedback for health optimization with continuous glucose monitoring. So she is really the OG in this topic. And we have her to really thank for bringing this into the into the forefront of, of sort of the, the conversation. Um, and she does so many different things. So she is an author. She's a physician. She's a lecturer at Stanford. She is a uh, content creator and writer. And in all of this, she focuses on the science and tools to expend, extend health span, achieve health optimization, and scale personalized medicine. Um, she has an amazing course at Stanford that she created called Live Better Longer, Extending Health Span to Lengthen Lifespan, which I seriously wish I'd had years ago when I was at Stanford. And this class is super popular. It exposes students to evidence-based holistic tools for living the longest and healthiest life possible. Um, and so cool to think how planting those seeds will totally probably change their trajectory if they go into medicine, which is amazing. Um, she's been a consultant and advisor to over 50 companies in the digital health, consumer health, and biotech industries. She's the spokesperson of Qualia Skin by Neurohacker. Um, we're going to talk about skin later in the episode, so stay tuned. Um, and she's currently writing an amazing book with Harper Wave on female biohacking and is the founder of Adamo Biosciences, which aims to radically improve health by optimizing the love we can experience in our lives. So we have so much to talk about. Welcome to a whole new level, Molly. Thank you so much, Casey. It's such a pleasure to be here. And what a beautiful introduction. I appreciate you so much. Oh, of course. I appreciate you. And 
Um, I want to jump in, totally not talking to my metabolic health, but you literally just arrived back stateside from an amazing trip to Antarctica. So I would love for you to tell us just a little bit about your trip to Antarctica and what did you learn about um, yourself and, and maybe like what new things you learned about the earth during this trip? Yeah. I mean, whoa. Can I just tell you that there's something that happens when you get to a, a continent that you have only seen photos of and you realize that this is both the most beautiful experience you've had in your entire life, but it's also the most paradoxically terrifying because you're watching nature melt in front of you. And literally, like when I was there, there was like this massive um, ice shelf collapse. And I wasn't, I didn't see the ice shelf collapse. We would do some calving episodes of of the of Antarctica um, ice, but essentially the hottest day recorded um, was when I was there. And there was a part of Antarctica that was like 70 degrees. And we had uncharacteristically beautiful weather. And in fact, our um, guides were like, we've never had a cruise here that had four days of perfect sun. And so we've never seen this many sunsets. Like this something is definitely not the same about this trip. So it was a really unique experience. Um, paradoxically, very challenging to get there. But yet when you're there, it's in, it's insanely stunning and beautiful and easy. But when you're get, but getting there is really hard. Like you have to fly to the very lowest city, like the, basically Ushuaia, which is the biggest, um, it's like the lowest um, city in this hemisphere. And then you have to take this large cruise liner through what's called the Drake's Passage. And Drake's Passage is basically one of the most insane things to do because these waves are like 20 to 30 feet. And so you were being like swayed right and back forth. Like people were getting sick. Like there was actually a dance party that was happening in like, imagine an entire room of people dancing, swaying back and forth. It was like a, it was almost like, so this trip was interesting. It was it was a combination of um, like world-class DJs and musicians world-class entrepreneurs and investors, really incredible programming. We had Mark Hyman, who is an absolute luminary. And I believe, I think it might be a levels advisor, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we had, pro, so we had programming, music, parties, and Antarctica. And so putting that all together in a trip makes it, to, it's, a, it's, it's just, it's a peak experience times 10. But it's also like coming back from that, I felt like I was recovering from Burning Man. Like, <laughs> It was not. Uh, it was not an easy transition back into normal existence. I had uh, ten days of you know basically being offline because um, it, it costs like five, it costs like three hundred fifty dollars to get five gigs. So you really don't want to be on your computer a lot because it's mm-hmm. expensive. But um, but I have to say, seeing seals and seeing penguins and seeing raw nature in front of you and just being able to put your feet on a continent you you know that like is so remote and foreign is awe inspiring. But it completely made me step back from everything I'm doing in my life and pause because I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's really hit me. We're in an environmental crisis. We're also in a war. And there is, you know, there's a war happening when I'm coming back. And there's going to be a major food crisis. And there's a major health crisis. And then there's this, you know, there's like, there's like all these political crises happening all at once. And I'm coming back and I'm looking at myself thinking, what can I do to make more impact now versus the current plan I had for my company I was working on was about 10 years, billion dollars was going to cost. And I, I actually looked at this plan. And I go, what the hell am I thinking? 
we don't have enough time to be wasting on things that are going to take that long. I need to be doing things for humanity now. So I've actually been like spending the last five days realigning a lot of my priorities with business and really like trying to think through how to start creating more value for consumers now about learning about the science of love and what the neurobiology of love can teach us about healing um, and safety versus threat. And I think we're facing so many threats that we need more than ever to find ways to connect. And what was so profound for me on this trip was the the sense of, holy crap, there's a lot of threats we're facing. We're all facing together collectively as as, as, as humanity. But more than ever, I'm like, oh my God, this is the moment that we all realize we need each other and we need our bonds because our bonds are going to protect us and help us thrive in the midst of adversity. And um, so it was a it was a life-changing trip, by far the best trip I've ever taken, mm-hmm. but also so deeply awe-inspiring and also kind of terrifying because you're like, oh shit, things are melting. <laughs> mm. And it's really happening. You can't uh, you can't avoid it when you look at it firsthand. Amazing. You know, and I think it's it's interesting he- hearing you talk about kind of reframing a little bit and how to bring value like as quickly as possible. I think just looking at your work, I mean, you, you, I think, bring so much value just every single day by just what you are talking about on social media and on podcasts and helping spread awareness of things that a lot of people are just not aware of, like the relationship between emotional health and physical health. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, we are basically all the human impact things that you're talking about, war, choices that drive, you know, climate change, yeah. um, isolation and disconnection. Like, I think one of the ways probably both of us look at this is like, this is the product of brains and brains are cellular structures that are basically dictated by hormones and all sorts of things and food. And so, you know, one of the like table stakes things that we have to figure out is like how to make that, that organ and that system and that whole body within the whole body, like function properly. And I think the way that you think about that is very unique. And I, I, I'd be, I'd love for you to just maybe before we dive super deep into things to kind of just talk about how you personally define and think about health and, um, and about what a healthy functioning body and mind actually is like, what, what does that look like? How does it, how should it feel? And what does it mean to actually be healthy in your framework? Yeah. I mean, so when I was younger, I was like, oh, health is just like this, this goal that we have. We get to this point and we're like optimally well. And I like, I, when I was a t- teenager, I was like going through puberty and I had all sorts of hormone dysfunction because I lived in the Midwest. I grew up with a lot of antibiotics. I grew up, um, just a, a little background. I, it might help people understand why I am the way I am by understanding that I was not always glowing health. I was a sickly child. I was born with a traumatic birth. I ended up having a lot of antibiotics. I was in and out of hospitals. I had pneumonia as a child. I had chronic strep throat. I had my tonsils out. I had gut dysfunction. I had mood disorder because I had ADHD as a result of the gut-brain axis being completely thrown off. I had impacted teeth. I had to have surgery in sixth grade to like to bring, you know, to fix my mouth. And then I when I hit puberty, my hair went straight to curly and I started breaking out all over my back. My feet smelled. I had hormones all over the place. And I did not know what the heck was wrong with me. And so I said to myself, Molly, someday you're going to find out how your body works and you're going to fix all these problems. So by the time I was in ninth grade, I was already taking supplements. I was already trying to hack my body. I was already trying to fix things. I was 100% a perfectionist. 
I was like in, you know, varsity sports and getting straight A's and in student government. And I was fearless, but I went through patterns of t- in my life where I would just like work myself into the ground and burn out. Right. So I have these like cycles of achievement and burnout and, and like perfectionism and dysfunction in so many different ways. And I just always hoped that there would be a day where I would wake up and everything would be perfect. Mm. And it never actually came. However, what did happen is I committed myself to a life of pursuing health. And so as a result of discovering that health is not this picture-perfect moment in your life where you're like, boom, I'm finally healthy, I discovered in the process of studying health that health was about adapting and self-managing in the face of adversity. So this concept of adaptation is why it's so important not to see health like as the WHO's definition, like it's pie in the sky, complete absence of disease or infirmary, Complete mental, physical, and emotional well-being, like that is not reality for humanity because life is going to challenge you. And truly, health is all about how do you handle those challenges? How does your body bounce back? How do you become resilient to stress? How does your body not lose its adaptive capacity, its functional capacity? How do you maintain a healthy blood sugar, blood pressure in the midst of facing challenges? And so um, when I, I mean, I really got lucky because I was like gifted a very amazingly loving family. I was given, I was gifted an ability to like stay focused and persistent on a goal of becoming a doctor. And I was also gifted at being basically fearless in pursuing a path of my own desire rather than the desires of the society around me or other people who think, who thought I should be a mainstream doctor. So as a result, I got to spend 10 years basically doing research and building a practice and working with companies that gave me a platform to basically study health and figure out how to optimize it. And because I found a a niche in really well-paid investors, executives, and entrepreneurs who were happy to plunk down lots of cash to run labs, I was basically offered a golden opportunity out of my own design. I, I specifically was like, there have been doctors who've taken care of kings in the past, and I will be one of these doctors who takes care of kings of the present. And I did it. But in the process, I discovered that um, money doesn't buy health. Um, it certainly can extend you know, life and certainly does make it more possible for you to have health. But really, the secret to health is actually in the relationship you have to yourself and your body, your environment, and the, those around you, and being able to take in information and, and act on that information and, and actually adapt to different demands. So whether it be environmental demands, whether it be work, work demands, relationship demands, or even physiological demands, like things like, for example, like bodies break down. How are you going to, how are you going to adapt to those breakdowns? Does your body have enough resources to bounce back? Do you have the capacity to change your behavior to optimize the chances of your body staying strong and healthy? So I got, I got kind of interested in this idea of um, dynamic, like more, this idea of, of, of allostasis versus homeostasis. Mm-hmm. So most of medicine learns that homeostasis is all about vital signs. So you go to your doctor once a year, 15 minutes, you get your labs checked and that's a snapshot. But I was like, that doesn't seem to be enough information to make really good decisions because it's like, if I just took a picture of you one day of the year where you looked really great, you, that does not tell me about the 375 days of the year where you did not, you may, you may not have looked that way. You may not have felt that way. So I was like, what would it, what would health, what would health monitoring look like if it was time course data versus snapshot data? And I was like, okay, I can get wearables. So I got really into wearables, right? I was like, I can just put wearables on my patients and see what happens to their sleep, their stress, their movement. And so I was like very much a big part of like the quantified self movement in the very beginning. 
But I, I had, I had been asked to do a consulting project for a company and they were like, we can monitor 21 different biomarkers in interstitial space, but which one should we do and why? So I was like, huh, all right, I'm going to go into the physiology textbooks. I'm going to go into all of the different, you know, like research papers, and I'm going to figure this question out. And I ended up writing countless pages on all the different options you could measure. But I was like, glucose. Glucose Mm -hmm. is the most important marker of your interstitial space because it is literally how you are adapting to what you eat, how you move, how you sleep, where you live, um, who you talk to, like it responds to everything. It's such an incredible marker because it's so, it's so dynamic. And so I was like, wow, this is also a really important marker that seems to go wrong in a lot of people. And it's an important marker that we don't have good monitors for, except for, for diabetics. So this company was working on hardware for the masses. Turns out that by working with this company, I ended up getting asked to join their team. And I, I know I worked part-time for them because they needed a, uh, like a, you know, a head of medical science. And I remember working with them and I was like, guys, why are we developing hardware again? Because like we've built a software product and it works and I found some customers and we might want to just work on the software. And they were like, uh, no, we're going to work on hardware. And the company folded and they ended up selling to another company. And I was like, oh my God, like my biggest problem, Casey, in my career has been I'm about five to 10 years ahead of most people. <laughs> and so as a result, it's like really hard to build companies when you're like, oh crap, I'm like literally way too far ahead. Uh, and and honestly, I remember going to investors at the time and I was like, I think these these glucose monitors can be used to make products. And, and they're like, great idea. This is really useful. And I didn't have enough confidence at the time to build a company around it. But honestly, like, I feel like really grateful that I got to be a part of helping stem a movement, you know, like part of what I'm here to do is be a catalyst. Like I am 100% the kind of person who, if you enter, if I enter your life, you're going to be changed. And so whether you like it or not, and I think that's what I'm here to do for humanity is to help be a catalyst of of change. And, and the beauty of that is I get to like discover new things and then help companies like yours and other companies like really transform because like, we, what we're trying to do with what, with what Levels is doing and what any other company in CGM is trying to do is actually transform people's understanding of what health is all about. And you cannot really understand health if you don't understand blood sugar because blood sugar is easily, I think, probably the most important dynamic marker of health that we have. If you've heard me talk on other podcasts before, you know that I believe that tracking your glucose and optimizing your metabolic health is really the ultimate life hack. We know that cravings, mood instability, and energy levels, and weight are all tied to our blood sugar levels. And of course, all the downstream chronic diseases that are related to blood sugar are things that we can really greatly improve our chances of avoiding if we keep our blood sugar in a healthy and stable level throughout our lifetime. So I've been using CGM now on and off for the past four years since we started Levels. And I have learned so much about my diet and my health. I've learned the simple swaps that keep my blood sugar stable, like 
flax crackers instead of wheat-based crackers. I've learned which fruits work best for my blood sugar. Like I do really well with pears and apples and oranges and berries, but grapes seem to spike my blood sugar off the chart. I'm also a notorious night owl and I've really learned with using levels. If I get to bed at a reasonable hour and get good quality sleep, my blood sugar levels are so much better. And that has been so motivating for me on my health journey. It's also been helpful for me in terms of keeping my weight at a stable level much more effortlessly than it has been in the past. So you can sign up for Levels at levels.link slash podcast. Now let's get back to this episode. I just want to circle back to that amazing definition that you sort of talked about with health, which was the body's ability to adapt and self-manage, self-manage in the face of adversity. Is that right? Yeah. So that is so fascinating. And I think, you know, that that is something that, you know, we should just, I just want to highlight again, because that's probably not a definition of health that people have really heard before. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much embedded in that, that I think both of us think about a lot, which is, you know, the cell, the body is this just incredible, like, it's like, 37 trillion cells, plus all these, mm-hmm. you know, trillions of bacterial cells changing mm-hmm. constantly, literally every day. We're like, you know, taking food and, you know, signals from the external world, the environment, putting into our body, rebuilding ourselves, shape shifting changes. Like we're a different body second to second and minute to minute. And, yeah. you know, we don't have any real insight into what's happening inside that black box. And that's where I think your insight about biowearables and continuous biofeedback is so important because we've sort of, I think we're both trained in medicine, but also just as people to think of the body as this static entity that like we have a body and then the body's born and then the body dies and it's this thing and it's not. It's like, you know, if we could actually see under a microscope what was going on, we'd see that we're just this buzzing hive of atoms that's constantly being transferred with the, you know, or constantly being um, recycled with the external world, um, you know, literally even like breathing in and out air, we're like constantly converting things. And it's just so fat. And so without any insight into that process or without even a mental model for understanding that's actually what the body is, we, I think it really undermines the idea of habits because with habits are about daily consistency, knowing that you're constantly changing and that, and that the situation Mm -hmm. is changing Mm -hmm. and you don't just get to like have one healthy meal once a month and think that that it's actually, you know, that's going to make a big difference because we were constantly rebuilding and constantly adapting. And so I think that adapt word is so important. And I just think about my own life, you know, different periods of challenge where there was more adversity. And it was so obvious that if I didn't change what I was doing a little bit, like mm-hmm. get more sleep or do more mindfulness or eat mm-hmm. particularly anti-inflammatory foods, I would break down because my body yeah. had higher needs. Like yeah. just thinking about after my mom passed away, that was a huge psychosocial, you know, stressor. Yep. I'm sure my stress hormones were much higher. I was probably churning through B vitamins way faster, you know, as I was making those stress hormones. If if you don't recognize that and adapt, like the body will not be able to kind of do what it needs to do. Similar, like if you have an infectious disease, you may need more selenium or whatever to like, sure. so it's just, I, I think that that framing that you talk about, like there's just so much built into it that gets us back to thinking about how important it is to both understand what's going on inside the black box of the body, but also 
how important like daily habits are for yeah. like well, keeping up with things. about habits. I mean, yeah. people people forget that like the whole purpose of developing health habits is that you can literally offload work of having to think about being healthy into the part of your mind that doesn't have to think about being healthy. So like when I wake up in the morning and I go in and, and just, I have a planned exercise. Like, I don't know what, I don't always know what I'm going to do in the morning, but I know that I'm going to move my body. It has taken me a, like literally 10 years to get into a consistent fitness habit. Okay. I spent basically part of my twenties sedentary in school and it destroyed my health. Turns out that you need to send signals into your body to make more energy and exercise is the signal to make more energy. And when I figured that out, I was like, well, this is a non-negotiable. If I want to have energy, I have to exercise. Like, duh. Now with that, it's a habit. It's like, this is easy for me. Like, it's not, I don't have to think about it. I just have to go and do it, you know? And and I can go out inside and run if I can't do anything else. Now, um, the interesting thing about exercise is like, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the pandemic lifting weights, but then I ended up somewhere where I didn't have a gym. And so I started running and it was fascinating to watch my body go from strong and muscular to lean and lithe. And it was like very fast. I mean, I lost my butt like that. Like I broke off that, <laughs> that and my muscles started getting leaner. And it's, it's fascinating that people don't realize that literally by the way that you live your life, it sends a signals to your cells to adapt to those different demands. Mm-hmm. So your body's always trying to predict the next day and, pre- and prepare you for the next day. Your body's actually beautifully designed to make sh- to make the next day hopefully more likely to keep you alive. Like they want to make sure that you're going to be alive tomorrow. So your body's like, okay, if I didn't move my body today, then that means I may not need to have as much energy for tomorrow because I'm in a rest mode. So that means that I'm going to make less energy. And so the problem with that is that if you don't move your body for like a week, your body starts going into, oh shit, I'm immobilized. Oh crap, I don't actually, like it actually causes more stress in the body not to move your body than to move your body. Um, there's what's called illness behavior, sickness behavior. And that actually, well, that's that's literally a product of metabolic dysfunction. Your body will start going into these energy saving modes in order to preserve itself. But in the process, it's highly maladaptive long-term. So we need habits in order to not have to think about being healthy all the time, but also because if we don't do things habitually, that our body will adapt to, to, to unfortunately, you know, our, your body is designed to be healthy based on its genetics, okay? So your genetics are primitive genetics. Your genetics are like, I live on a savanna and I'm here to move my body all day long. And I'm also here not to eat all day long. So it turns out that like, we now have, we now have this like environment of like constant food availability and a lot of sedentary behavior. And so the real challenge for most modern humans is like, how do I adapt to a life that is totally different than my genetics are designed for, okay? Like that is the question. Um, We're really not designed to have constant threat. We're actually not designed to have like constant news on causing psychological Mm. threats. And we're not designed to have constant comparison threat from like looking at Instagram and saying, oh, this perfect body that's completely filtered. We're designed to actually be mostly peaceful in tribes with surrounded by people who could keep us safe. And to be occasionally afraid of dangerous, you know, neighboring tribes or, or animals that would come in to attack you. We're really not designed to be in this constant threat state. So chronic disease, the new, the new model for chronic disease is actually based on chronic threat versus safety. Mm-hmm. And so there's literally docs. So I've been talking to this guy, Stephen Porges, who's like an absolute visionary thinker, and Sue Carter, who's also an absolute visionary thinker. And they're so interesting, this couple, because he has figured out the autonomic nervous system's behavior in threat versus safety. And she has figured out, and by the way, you should look up polyvagal theory if you haven't heard about it. She has figured out 
the neuropeptide biology of love and safety, safety, love, safety, um, trust and bonding versus threat and danger, right? So she figured out the neurobiology of this and he figured out the autonomic nervous system. So these two people somehow became, you know, a couple. It's almost like destiny, right? The way people sometimes come together. And I, I came to know them because I was trying to ask myself, why do people make the wrong decisions for their food and their lifestyle mm-hmm. when we know we should eat better and we know we should exercise more and we know we should stress out less and we know we should sleep more? Why do people not do these things? Like, that was my biggest question. I was like, there's something missing here in my in my understanding of, of humanity. And I was talking to a friend of mine today because I was like, pointing out that, you know, there's quite a lot of, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of problems in, in obviously modern American society right now. And I was trying to explain to him what I thought was actually the root cause of our obesity epidemic. And I wrote to him basically that like the real pandemic in bodies is a state of constant threat that get manipulated by food companies who know the foods that hijack reward pathways, which lessen the threat signaling and contributes to energy imbalances, metabolic disease, and obesity. So like, I, I've been asking myself, like, mm. why is it that people make reach for the cookie instead of the apple? Like, what is the reason why they go for the bad food? And it's like, we forget that, like, we have these reward pathways that are specifically designed to keep you alive. And food companies have specifically hijacked these reward pathways so that you turn to those foods to send safety signals to the brain and chronically eating these high pleasure bliss point foods contributes to maladaptive health, right? Like we end up with metabolic diseases. We end up with you know, high fat, high sugar foods and fast foods, processed foods cause visceral fat. They cause ectopic fat storage. They cause blood sugar dysregulation. They cause metabolic inflexibility. But it's actually the bigger global issue is not that these foods are inherently evil. It's that people are being manipulated by constant threat signaling. It's mm. not a surprise that if you watch the news, it's threat signaling. And then what is the, what is the commercial? It's fast food. It's mm. threat signal and it's, it's reward pathway. Threat signal, reward pathway. And it's, it's, it's like, if you don't notice that this is happening, then you are literally being completely manipulated by companies, by the media. And, it's, and you cannot blame yourself for being obese and being, and like struggling. Like I actually look at people who are impoverished and I have a completely different perspective on why people are obese because their bodies are literally trying their best to survive and they don't realize that they're being manipulated by these greater powers outside of them that have not, like the government has not made it easy for people to eat healthy food. That is not the same case in most countries. Our government has not made it easy for people to eat healthy, first and foremost, by the food policies that we have. We have constant threat signaling in the media, which our government has not stopped and totally supports. And we don't, we, we, we basically designed a car, a city, a city a society around cars. So because we all drive and we don't walk, we don't move our bodies, it, the, the, the outcome of a society designed to hijack pathways that, that would actually save energy and store energy is too much saved and stored energy, which is unfortunately metabolic dysfunction in a lot of cases. So it's actually fascinating because if you actually just look at the big picture, you're like, Oh, this whole obesity epidemic makes sense. It's not about the individual at all. It's, it, it has nothing to do with most people. Most people actually are not trying to be obese mm. and blaming them as some sort of moral injury is like actually looking at addicts and saying, oh, addicts are just morally inferior. I now look at addiction as people hijacking their own reward pathways 
to fulfill the lack of social connection that they cannot find in their relationships. And when you look at every person that, I mean, just don't talk to a person who's an addict, there was some sort of major life breakdown with their relationships that led to them having to turn to addiction. There was some sort of relationship breakdown with themselves that led to them feeling worthless, led to them feeling completely like they couldn't find pleasure in being who they are. And so they turn to drugs that activate these reward pathways and they become stuck. Their body can never get back to that original high. And so they're chasing the dragon and they and then they become disconnected from their families and communities because they are no longer seen as normal people. They're seen as addicts. They are a different type of person. They are dangerous. They are thieves. They prostitute themselves and they do all sorts of things that normal people would never do. And so because they have they've been disconnected from their families and their communities, Drugs are literally the only way that they can get those rewards. So it turns out that relationships and loving relationships are the ultimate source of of reward, actually. So like we get super rewarded by feeling connected and loved. And this is like what everyone is actually searching for is connection and love and feeling safe. And the ultimate safety molecule is oxytocin. And oxytocin and safety comes from feeling like you have secure attachment with your family members and your parents and your friends, feeling like people delight in seeing you, feeling like you have resources to survive and people can help you, can share resources with you to help you survive, feeling safe, feeling psychologically safe, feeling physically safe, having a roof over your head and feeling, um, you know, basically that like you can explore your inner and outer world and it's okay. So like I've really kind of boiled down my health perspectives after spending so long in biology and just, you know, laboratory tests and monitoring tools, I was like, oh my God, I I have to actually take a step back from all of this. There's actually this much bigger, bigger problem, which is global human disconnection from mm-hmm. community and family and, them, and ourselves. And that's really where the, neuro, like the, the Adama bioscience was born. It was like, I need to figure out how to help people truly connect because the metaverse is going to cause massive amounts of mental illness. If we thought that addiction and drugs were bad, just wait till people are addicted to the metaverse. It is going to cause rippling effect to gener- multi-generation, multi-generational downstream effects on humanity if we are not careful. And um, yeah, I think we're at a massive turning point. And I mean, that was a huge like lecture, but I'm actually glad we're on this podcast because I would really like to get the transcript of this. <laughs> this is good stuff. <laughs> Oh my God. I could literally listen to you talk all day, Molly. And like, I want, uh, yeah, I, as we were talking, I was like, oh, I want that to be a clip. I want that. To, like, it's just so, so amazing. Your, your vision about all of this. And so something I took away from what you just said is that, you know, it's funny, we talk a lot about root causes to health. I mean, that's what I think people like you and I and other functional precision medicine people are focused on. What's the root cause? Yes. And a yes. lot of time we get down to, and that usually gets down to cellular dysfunction, something related to the mitochondria. Um, and how food and whatnot are hijacking the mitochondria. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that like, we actually need to go a layer deeper than that, which is actually what's driving some of the behaviors that lead to that root cause dysfunction, which comes down to a really like primordial um, screw up in the way we're living, which is that the thing that keeps us on the, uh, you know, on the better side of the balance between threat and safety um, and therefore a sense of, you know, survival need um, is totally being hijacked by modern culture. And I think one question I have, I'd love your thoughts on is like, I think the average person out there is like, 
we've only known modern life. And so like, we think it's oh, yeah. normal. And so oh, yeah. you like, let's just think of the average quote unquote healthy mid 30 person. It's like, they've got their iPhone, they've got the emails and texts coming in every day. They've got the notifications. Yeah. They've got Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, all the things. Um, yeah. A million dings. They go in a car, there's honking, there's red lights, there's green lights, there's people around them. Yeah. They may not be that tight with their extended family because they live all over the world. You have a good relationship with your family, but like yeah. see them a few times a year. You know, you've got some friends, a lot of your friends you're talking to online. It's kind of like that's, I'm just like kind of trying to paint a picture of like normal life. And then they might, they'd be like, yeah, I've got great relationships. I've got great connect. I'm not, I don't feel threatened. I feel fine. Um, but like, how do you look at that modern world and how you think yeah. some of that is actually translating into sort of stuff in our brain that we might, I guess like what I'm asking is like, people may not even be aware where they are on the threat safety spectrum because we just think all of this is so normal. So what do you yeah. think? How, can you talk a little about the neurobiology of what's happening? Sure. And if we generally feel pretty good, but we are living in normal life and and maybe like what, how to wake up to that and then what, how people should be thinking about how to kind of get on top of this. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that I really want to emphasize first and foremost is like, there's kind of two main concepts here that I want to get clear. And one is on, and this is actually something that, um, I guess I want to bring this up because it's like, it's in my mind and I want to bring it up before I talk about the second topic. So the first thing I want to talk about is the concept of power and energy and capacity and allostatic load. So that relationship is really important. The second thing I want to talk about with you is this idea of threat versus safety. And because it actually has a lot to do with our allostatic load and has a lot to do with our capacity. So basically, like, I really truly believe that power and energy dynamics underlie so much of life on a microscopic level, a molecular level, and on a macro level. So part of the reason why Elon Musk is the richest man in the world is because he figured out how to get us off of the grid in a lot of ways, get us off of the oil and gas grid and figure out how to create more of an electric life, right? He figured out how to create electric cars. That is part of the reason why he's so wealthy is because this, this understanding of, oh my God, what if we use battery power instead of oil? That would actually change the way that society looks. It would change the way the environment looks. And he did it. So I actually think that like the war in Ukraine and the and like what's going on with the resource allocate basically resources with these like large superpowers. If you have to look at almost every major war, it's almost always a war on resources. And sometimes it's a war in the name of God, but it's almost always in the war in the name of resources. So like one of the fundamental unfortunate aspects of being a human on earth is that you need to find resources to survive. And so the most original evolutionary adaptation that happened to the creation of mitochondria occurred with bacteria being engulfed by um, single-celled organisms and they harnessed the bacteria's capacity to make energy and, and gather energy. And that actually enabled human evolution. That was one very important facet of evolution. Um, so in the process, so, we, so we're all here to figure out how to gather energy and have enough resources to survive. So when we have a lot of resources, we have a lot of functional capacity, we have more energy than we need to do work, right? And one of the most beautiful things about the body is that we can work, we can actually run on, uh, let's say this is a, let's say this is like something with sugar in it. We can run on the grid or we can run on our own battery power, which is our, mm. our own fat, right? So you can, what's called flipping the metabolic switch 
is like you're a hybrid vehicle. So you can go from running on the grid to running on your own fuel. But most people have never figured out how to do that because most people are only on the grid and they're metabolically inflexible. They cannot gear shift. So they're basically like a gas guzzling car. So I believe that basically if we could crack the code of energy metabolism and metabolic flexibility, this is about as important to the future of humanity as it was figuring out how to create electric cars. So like, this is why your company is so important. And honestly, like I needed to probably do more work with you guys because I have an entire program on building metabolic flexibility and understanding how to measure metabolic flexibility. But this is a major problem um, because most people are metabolically inflexible. Most people have too much ectopic fat storage. Most people cannot gear shift. Most people are just, unfortunately, the, the, the wheat crisis is actually a bigger reflection of the fact that we have a we, we have a major crisis of people being on the grid to survive. Like they cannot, like if you don't eat constant carbs, then you run out of fuel and you bonk. That's most people. Most people are actually not able to drop into fat metabolism. So when they stop eating food, they run out of energy and their brains start turning off. I've seen this in athletes. I've seen this in the obese. Um, so this is like, this is really an important facet of health that like the problem, the problem that happens if you run out of fuel is your brain starts going, oh shit, I don't have any fuel. What am I going to do? And you start going into into like essentially survival mode and threat mode and you start freaking out. Um, we need to get people metabolically flexible so that they can be okay for not eating for three days. Like that is the natural design of a human body is actually totally fine to fast. If I if you need to go without food for a week, you're good. That's not normal most for most Americans. Most Americans can't even go without a few hours without eating. So like this is an important concept that I think is very related to understanding metabolic health and, and why your company is so important. Um, so like, basically, that's one facet of health that I think is worth talking about, because like most people are actually very much threatened by the way that they're so, so tapped into the grid and the food supply that they just can't survive without, without it, right? Like they, they don't grow their own food. They can't tap into their own fat. They couldn't go with a few days without eating. And in a modern world, we actually need to be very resilient and very metabolic, metabolically flexible because there may be times in the in the near future, there may there's going to be a massive famine potentially if we don't figure out the Ukraine soon. They don't plant winter wheat. A hundred million people might go, might, might starve. So like, this is a big, big discussion around metabolism and macro, macroeconomics and, and what's like resources. When we have resources, we feel safe. When we don't have resources, we run out of energy we start going into panic mode. The body starts going into, oh shit, I'm not going to survive, right? So survival mode is one mode. And then like safety resource is another mode. Now, um, I think the second thing I mentioned talking about was specifically like the, the, the these two modes, okay? So essentially like trauma, chronic isolation, chronic stress, these, th these things are not really normal for humanity, right? So like we're not, we're, we're pack animals. We are designed to live in groups. We evolved genetics to live in groups that would have been protective. Loneliness is a primitive hunger signal designed to get you closer to your tribe. And anyone who tells you it's all like all these other things is just like missing the big picture of the evolutionary biology. So trauma, like, yes, of course, in primitive times, like things were occasionally very traumatizing, but it was a different world, different type of trauma. Like the, the kind of trauma we have nowadays is all sorts of screwed up, right? Um, and then chronic stress, like we were really designed to um, essentially evolve to be in a state of occasional acute stress. Like we have this perfectly designed system to manage acute stress and it gets very maladaptive and chronically. 
So what happens in a situation is that it upregulates vasopressin signaling. And vasopressin signaling is actually a lot stronger naturally in men. Um, so men actually do a little bit better than women when it comes to um, like when the winter, when men are under threat, they mobilize and they fight, right? For the most part. There's basically three ways that you your body really want to respond to major threat. It's fight, flight, or freeze. And Stephen Porkis has basically studied this. And um, freeze means immobilizing in fear, okay? And then um, fight means I'm going to go off and fight, you know? And then... Um, and then flight means I'm just going to try to run away, right? So that's 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 something that's kind of important to understand. Um, but essentially, in the short term, these behaviors would have been, you know, essentially adaptive. But in chron- chronically, chronically activating these stress signals and these stress systems, and having trauma that puts your body in a state of hypervigilance means that you're basically stuck in threat mode. So everyone who has chron- most of my clients who have had chronic fatigue have had not only chronic stress, but a major life stressor on top of chronic stress that just broke their body and got them stuck into threat mode. Usually there was an infection involved, like an intercellular infections are pretty bad. So COVID and and what happens when you have viral infections that become chronic is, um, and people who get basically long COVID is their body was already, had low functional capacity. And then they 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 faced a major physiological threat and potentially even psychological threats, typically on top of that, and that their, their body just didn't have enough capacity to, to to meet the demands. And so, when your capacity and your demands are not matched, then your body will break. So your capacity is too low, your demands are too high, your body just starts your body starts to break down. And that's kind of like the rule I've learned in health is like you really want to build as much capacity. And I I look at capacity actually as a function of cellular capacitance. So the mitochondria are organelles that basically take in substrates, food, air, and water, and they transform it into energy through what's called the electron transport chain, which powers a turbine, which causes as an electrochemical gradient that creates a battery and a capacitor. So capacitance comes from the differential charge between the inner and outer membrane of the mitochondria and the inner and outer membrane of the cell. So there's actually charge differential on the on membranes. And then, um, and then there's also electro- like uh, electrochemical differences, which actually enable a polarity, which enables the cell to be a battery and a capacitor. So your mitochondria are really important to producing energy and storing energy. So when we have dysfunctional mitochondria from a lifestyle that happens to be filled with high-fat, high-sugar foods, which actually causes metabolic gridlock in the mitochondria, they become dysfunctional. They don't work normally. They don't actually handle demands as easily. They can't even mobilize energy as, as well as they should. And so you have to take care of your mitochondria if you want to be a healthy human. And like literally blood sugar is like a like the only way that we can see into mitochondrial function right now. There's literally no other way that we can actually have any idea of what's going on in mitochondria unless we have a blood sugar monitor. And so um, I would say that continuous stress monitors are also pr- quite, quite important. Like people don't realize this, but mitochondria actually modulate the stress system. They actually have uh, enzymes on the outer membrane that, that um, create epinephrine and norepinephrine, and they also help produce cortisol. So they're very important for stress signaling and they're very important for, um, for blood sugar signaling and blood, blood, blood sugar production, energy production. And so they're literally sensing and integrating signals from the environment to literally decide where the energy goes and decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to actually be, am I in safety right now? Can I reproduce? Or am I in threat right now? And do I need to defend myself? So what happened was Robert Naveau, uh, Navio, this phenomenal researcher basically figured out that there was a molecular 
interpretation of the polyvagal theory that he kind of figured out on his own. And him and Steven are friends. And basically, like, he's figured out that the cells under chronic threat can actually develop what's called the cell danger response. And the cell danger response, if it gets stuck, and if, you get, if, if your cells get stuck in threat mode, you can't actually have normal metabolism. Turns out, you can't actually have healthy metabolism if you are under constant threat. So what gets us out of threat? right? Like what gets us out of threat? This is the literal holy grail of chronic disease medicine. Like this is, if this gets, if this gets figured out in our lifetime, then basically we will be able to reverse almost all chronic diseases. But right now, the biggest question is, is like, how do we get the body out of threat mode? And inflammation, by the way, I look at inflammation and people are going to argue with me with this all day long. I have friends that are totally obsessed with inflammation, but I'm going to just try to simplify things for the masses. Inflammation is almost like alarm signals going off in your cells and mass. And when there's alarm signals going off, you can't, it's like it's like there's a fire alarm in the house. You can't also have normal operations of the house. If the fire alarm is still on and ringing, there's a problem. And so inflammation is often an end result of metabolic dysfunction. It's a cause and a consequence of metabolic dysfunction. And so we have got to figure out how to, how to build more capacity into younger, healthy humans so that they don't end up with chronic disease when they're in midlife. And the problem is, is that most people wait till midlife to do anything about their health. And that is way too late typically because you usually have hypertension, high cholesterol, and all these problems. And so what I'm really interested in, by personal interest, is what is love in a neurobiological like definition? And, and, and how does love make us stronger? How does love help us share resources? What? How does love help us? Like, what is this bond that's created between people? Why is that bond protective? And why is it that me being around friends and family that make me feel safe somehow enables my body to like naturally drop into normal metabolism, naturally start to lose weight, naturally start to relax? Like, what is it? And, and I think the common pathway here from this mentor of mine, Sue Carter, She's like, Molly, the common pathway is oxytocin. So oxytocin and vasopressin are like brother and sister. Vasopressin is all about war. It's all about threat. It's all about danger. It's all about mobilization of resources in order to defend yourself. It's all about uh, reactivity. It's all about fight, fight, freeze. And oxytocin is all about basically rest, recover, recuperate, heal, relax. You, you know, and, and essentially it is the, it is the, biomarker of social bonds. It is the biomarker of um, how we, how like basically mother and child, when when like a mother has, it, it bears a child, what happens is a mass amount of oxytocin is released to enable new life to be made. Literally the birth is a product of oxytocin release because you cannot have birth without oxytocin. It literally enables your body to undergo enormous stress and survive it. So it's like, and also it, it causes the, the bonding of mother and child. It causes the bonding of parent and child. So it's baked into how we feel safe, right? And so anything that, that messes up that relationship between parent and child, whether it be dysfunctional attachment patterns because parents were abusive or neglect, neglect, neglected their children, what happens is, is the body gets stuck in threat mode. And I got really interested in this specifically because I was interested in sexual dysfunction in women and why sexual trauma causes sexual dysfunction. And it turns out that when women experience sexual trauma, they what, what is supposed to be a pleasurable, safe experience of sex 
is a threatening and dangerous experience that upregulates vasopressin signaling and your body actually goes into a state of, if you're, if you're stuck and you're being raped, you get this thing called a mobilization with fear versus a mobilization without fear, which is what you need to actually have a healthy sex life. So I basically figured out why rape and trauma causes sexual dysfunction in women because it changes the neuro, the neuro, like the neurological settings of their of the autonomic nervous system, and it makes sex sex a dangerous experience. So essentially, this threat and safety paradigm is like making a lot of the decisions for you, and it, and it's it's a paradigm that you can see at a macro level with war. It's a paradigm you can see in like uh, a community level with with resource sharing and resource allocation. It's a it's a it's a paradigm you can actually look at cellular level when you look at mitochondria that are constantly sensing, do I have the resources to meet my demands? If I don't, oh shit, since things are going to break, right? And and like, I haven't completely been able to figure this out perfectly. Like A lot of this has literally come to me in the last week. So it's a great thing that we are doing this podcast because it's very fresh. But basically, I have like, I'm trying to come up with like a common unified theory of root cause health and disease because I think that there's something to these patterns that match multiple levels of existence. And I hope that made sense to you. <laughs> mm, it does. It's amazing. Um, oh man, there's so much I want to drill into there. I think that is so important. Um, <clears throat> one thing I thought was interesting that you talked about was that the metaverse is not actually going to solve the problems that we think it's going oh, to cause them all. And so I'd love oh, to yeah. hear, you know, if it really comes down to connection and feeling a tribe, on sort of the biologic level, why does something like the metaverse or social media um, or any of our digital communications not suffice? Well, communication technology, electronic parenting, social media, all of these things enhance social isolation. So there is something that is that happens when you're in the presence of someone else and it's called felt connection. And felt connection is not something that you can just reproduce through a Zoom call. You have to be present with someone to have truly felt connection. And largely because your brain makes electromagnetic fields around it and your heart makes electromagnetic fields around it. So there is something to be said about literally being in the presence of someone else and having felt connection with their energetic field. Like it's, an, it's not, I'm not talking about energetic field in the woo sense. I'm talking about it in the EKG and EEG sense. Like it's measurable. So I believe that we were designed for proximity. Specifically, proximity engages the system of the brain that, that turns off the threat signal if the, if the person that we're with is safe. So if, they're, if, they're, if there's someone that we know and someone that we trust, being with them physically turns off threat signaling. So there was actually this, um, I mean, I guess I, I can talk about that later, but but if you really look at, I was going to talk about the generalized and safety theory of stress. I, I used to believe that this theory was very like, I was like, oh man, this theory makes so much sense. The brain is on, uh, the, the theory is that the brain is on chronic stress as a baseline signal, unless it's turned off. Mm. But I spoke to Steven literally at dinner a few days ago and he goes, Actually, that's, that theory is, is, is flipped upside down. So we are supposed to be in community and in, we're supposed to be around people all the time. So in the absence of human connection, the brain is on chronic, the chronic threat. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
That is the answer, okay? Like that is literally why the pandemic caused 100,000 extra deaths of despair from addiction. Because disconnection, physical, social, physiological disconnection sends threat signaling to the brain. And, and And interestingly, when we get exposed to human connection, physical connection, and it's it's nourishing, it's safe, it's trusting. What happens is, is that oxytocin interacts with the reward signaling pathways. And those reward signaling pathways are designed to keep you alive, okay? And the, the two biggest ways that your brain tries to keep you alive is through food and through humans and through shelter as well. Shelter is important too. But largely safety comes from people, from food and from resources and from shelter from the from the, the world around us. So if you look at that paradigm, you're like, oh, if we put a screen in front of, I mean, I actually did this today. I was at lunch with my mom and I, I found myself kind of having a lull in conversation. And I looked at my phone. I was like, man, I got a million emails I could be checking right now. I'd really, I should be checking my email. And I, and I sat and I go, no, I'm going to be present and I'm going to force myself to be present. And I'm going to ask questions about her family and her relationship to her sisters, her relationship to her mom. And I'm just going to like, I'm going to see what's going on in my environment. I found there was a turtle that was digging a hole outside of the, the restaurant was like by the beach. And I was like, I'm going to force myself to like not freak out that I'm not doing work right now. And I'm just going to be present. And I just, I could not believe how hard it was for me to be, just sit still and not look at my phone. Like we are so conditioned now to spend so much of our time on our phones that we actually struggle with truly being present with people. And that is only getting worse with children whose parents don't really know how to handle the amount of work that they have, put food on the table and like, you know, like, so electronic parenting is basically becoming the norm where like, if I don't know what to do with my child right now in this moment, I'm going to put them in, I'm going to put a screen in front of them. And so these, these, these kids are being conditioned to believe that this is just the way life is. Life just isn't about connecting to my loved one. I am more safe by connecting with a screen than I am connecting with a person. And that is unfortunately never going to truly offer the same kind of safety that human connection will offer. So we have to be, I mean, so I, I, I was, I was with some parents, um, in Antarctica that were the brother kids with them. And I had a conversation with this mom about her daughters and two of her daughters were really struggling with returning to school because they had become adapted to mask wearing and isolation. And so they were like very nervous and awkward going back to school. Cause they're like, I don't know how to interact with my peers. I haven't done this for years. I've been doing online learning for years. I feel safe in online learning. I feel safe with the mask on. And so we've unfortunately programmed children to not know how to actually have social interaction. So if the metaverse becomes the baseline way people interact, then normal life is going to be really hard for people. It's going to actually make very little sense to people. They're not going to know how to be able to socialize properly. And I, I believe that without, I mean, I believe that if we don't, if we do not look at this right now as a culture, that we are going to be heading into a very, very different world. America will not be a superpower. We will actually be in the decline. And it, it, it could be, it could literally, it could literally mean just mass amounts of mental health problems completely skyrocketing and worsening and, and obesity. I mean, come on, let's talk about like not moving your body all day long. I mean, Ready Player One is an incredible movie and book, but the world people live in is terrifying in that movie. It is it is like the actual world around them is completely fell, fallen apart. It's polluted. It's disgusting. And they're in these, these horrible apartments. 
And I don't want that to be reality. I don't want that to be the world we live in. You know, I think another part of this this conversation that I think is interesting is kind of also around like the dopamine and serotonin aspect of it too. Like that you mentioned that, you know, and just for people listening, like sort of if we had to generalize those and and feel free to, you know, correct me at all, but like dopamine being sort of like our reward circuitry that you've been talking about a lot and that desire of desire and desire. Yeah. And serotonin being more of our contentment and like happiness and true like sense of calm. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's sort of a zero sum game where if you're hitting the dopamine constantly, it's very hard to access and be able to really live in that content and like true happiness state. And of course, we're living in a dopamine nation. And Lumpke from Stanford wrote this amazing book on this. And fortunately, lots of people are talking about this, like you, Andrew Huberman, Rob Lustig wrote Hacking of the American Mind. And I think one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, you know, you mentioned that in a state of threat, our body's immediately going to look for pleasure and safety, something to like get us out of that bad feeling, which could be, it could be anything that really spikes dopamine, like sugar, like, you know, it could be drugs, opioids, um, you know, even caffeine, sugar, uh, I think said sugar, alcohol, um, all these things that kind of tap it immediately. Oh my gosh, I feel good for a second. I'm not, everything's okay. But the irony is that the more you do that, like the more it makes it difficult to access that feeling. And so you increase that set point and now you're in the induction cycle of having to need more and more and more to kind of have that feeling. And and so a paradigm I've been thinking about a lot recently that what you were talking about got me thinking about more was sort of this idea that and also kind of getting into the hybrid car and being on the sure. or off the grid yeah. is that deprivation in some ways oh, is yeah. actually a pathway to happiness oh and God. to freedom. So yeah. And, and I, I've been thinking about this so much because deprivation means you're getting off the neurobiological dopamine wheel yeah. and actually investing in your ability to create more serotonin and a sense of like safety and to also then open up the ability to connect more deeply with people because like you said at lunch with your mom, you're not just like looking for the hit. And so you're able to kind of have space to be able to invest. And like, um, so it's like, you mentioned about the the being on the grid thing. I think this all actually feeds back into the mitochondria too, because if you're constantly overwhelming your body with sugar, which yeah. the, the, the huge irony here is that it's like the more energy substrate you put into the body, the more difficult it has making actual energy you can use. So it's like limiting the exposure and the consumption actually improves the machinery. Like it doesn't gum it up uh, and you can produce more energy that you can actually use. So it's almost like you have to give up something to get something. But in our world, in a brain that gets a dopamine hit from having the consumption, it's like, you know, that that survival aspect of it, unfortunately, it's just like, we're, we're just literally cogs in this horrible, vicious cycle wheel. Um, and we have to be aware of that, which is why I love this conversation, to consciously let our prefrontal cortex overcome that desire, kind of restrict a little bit so that we actually get the outcomes that we want. Um, yeah. And every time I have a day where I have very few glucose spikes and I know I'm restricting my overconsumption of that substrate, I'm thinking about how my mitochondria are basically able to burn cleaner forms of energy and therefore give me freedom, essentially. Yeah. Freedom from the grit, freedom yeah. from having to be on the teat of the sugar, you know, because my body is actually learning how to burn a cleaner, f- you know, fuel like fat and to use the battery. And it's like, 
just like if you have a battery and you're not plugged into the wall, that means you can be mobile. That means flexible. That means you can move. Like I want to be the battery. I want to be the electric car, but that requires some element of deprivation. And it requires... Yeah. And so I need to move the car out of the garage because if you're sitting in a car pouring fuel into a car, it's not moving. It's going to cause a lot of exhaust and it's not going to be healthy, right? You could die. Like, like, the car is supposed to be moving and you're not supposed to be pouring fuel into it every day. You're supposed to use fuel, right? Yeah. Going back to your deprivation thing, super important. Uh, Meditation has taught me that we are far more far more powerful than we have ever given ourselves credit for. And the things that you can do with your mind are absolutely astonishing if you can learn to sit. But the problem is, is that almost all meditation schools that are like, they're all about, de- they're all about deprivation to the point of discomfort. And so they're not really designed for the Western person. So most people will never ar- actually understand the beauty of deprivation because Vipassana is really just, it's way more designed for an India Indian person. Just like kind of like Ayurveda is kind of more designed for Indian genetics than it is for American genetics. So I I stumbled upon this thing called Kapasana. And everyone's going to go look, try to look up Kapasana. I'm sorry to say that it's a private members-only meditation group of badasses who you have to know this one guy, Jorge, in order to get in. However, I am going to figure out how to scale this someday when I have enough money to pay for millions of people to do Vipassana. All right. That is my definite goal. If I do become like a very wealthy human, I will 100% be giving away meditation retreats because my, my guru did this. He like became very wealthy, started giving away meditation retreats as his own, and he started designing them. And the thing I learned was when you can learn to sit still and be with your thoughts and sit with your body and not move and just be present with whatever comes up, you are different than 99.9% of most people because most people just can't do that. Most people just really cannot sit still and be quiet with their thoughts. And if you can learn to be, if you can learn to like sit quietly and not be eating and not be using food to make yourself feel safe and calm, you are also different than 99.9% of most people because most people are constantly seeking movement, monkey mind thoughts, and food in order to feel safe because they just don't know how to be present in the moment right now. And that is actually a huge shame because if you can learn this, you can do all sorts of things with your mind that are incredible. Like you can actually get high off your own brain neurochemistry by just thinking about how drugs feel. Like I actually have done this and I have been able to get my brain into a state of MDMA without having taken MDMA. And I was like, and honestly, I was like so busy on drug development for last year, trying to work on this combination drug that is a really, it's a real life love drug. It's a great love drug. But I was so focused on it that I forgot that actually we can do this with our own minds. Like our minds are actually able to transform our biology and transform the way we feel. But most people just haven't harnessed them, harnessed the power in our heads because they're under threat all the time. And their bodies are always in reactivity. Threat and reactivity is never going to be a real state of, of unfortunately growth and transformation. It actually is in a state of just trying to survive, which sucks because, man, if we could do one thing for humanity, it would actually just be getting people to sit still and be calm in the moment without having to react. Yeah. Just like get off that that dopamine hit treadmill and and open up all these other parts of the brain that, you know, think thinking of it, yeah, like that zero-sum game, you kind of can't have it all. Like it does change 
It's like, well, what are you investing in that? And so I have a question that let's say there's people listening and, you know, some of these coping things that we have. So like drugs, opioids, um, alcohol, sugar, for sure, sugar. um, Vegetable oil, believe it or not. Vegetable oil, we talk about eventually. We do. Yeah. Like um, porn, porn, um, sex addiction, things like that. If, if, if someone's dealing with any of these, so like they feel like they need to reach for these things to have a normal day, sugar, alcohol, porn, caffeine. Yeah. Um, do you think that if that is a reality, like you need these things to have a normal day, there's some deeper work that people need to do? Or well, examine? The most important thing that most people need to do is actually take, a, take time away from normal life and pause. And the pregnant pause is 100% more valuable than sometimes doing, sometimes not doing is the most valuable thing you can do for yourself. So like I got back from Antarctica and I was in a mild panic because I was like, holy shit, I need to change the entire strategy of my company. I have literally 10 calls with investors next week. I need to figure out how to communicate with them, what I'm going to do. And I was like completely like, I had this total moment of panic and I was like laying in my bed and I was trying to meditate and I just started crying. And I was just like, Molly, just stop everything you're doing right now and just stop. Just stop because you are you do not have clarity. And if you do not have clarity, you should not act. And so the power of pausing, the power of taking a step back from your life and actually looking at how you're reacting and almost metacognition of your own existence. Like you have to have metacognition. Like metacognition is actually the real thing you need to build. It's ability to see the way that you think and examine yourself and the way that you behave and act from a third person's perspective. So I kind of did this metacognition of my existence in my life. And I was like, wow, I am in a moment of change. And in this moment of change, I need to actually cancel as many calls as possible next week. And I need to create some space for just deep thought. And I'm so glad that we're on this podcast today because actually talking to people is actually one of the best ways to clarify how you think. And like, even though I don't think everything I've said today is perfectly clear, there is some shreds of clarity here that are starting to come together into something that's bigger than even way bigger than who, who I am. It's bigger. It's it's actually like what we're we're on this, like what, what you're doing at Levels and what I'm trying to do with theor- the theory of, of love and connection and and being able to bring these to the masses, Casey. Like, like I get chills when I think about just how important it is for, for actually people to look at how they're living and ask themselves, what can I do to actually create an assessment of like what's really going on for me right now? So not everyone's going to get a doctor like you or I, but what you can do is ask yourself, okay, like right now in this moment, what is going on with my physical health? Like, am I working out consistently? Am I getting enough sleep? And my circadian, I mean, I have, I have friends that are super optimized humans and they still do not have normal circadian rhythms. And they literally regularly stay up till 6am working. And I'm like, that is a big area for improvement for some people. Have I taken a vacation in the last six months? Um, when's the last time I, I actually connected with a family or a friend? When's the last time I put my feet on the ground outside and just looked at the sunrise and the sunset? Okay. Like biologically, have I had my labs checked? Do I know what my biomarkers look like? Am I missing something with my hormones? Um, you know, is there something going on with my gut health? Am I potentially nutrient deficient? Do I have do I do I need to get my minerals and, and my nutrients checked? Like, let's just look at the baseline health situation. Right now, is my health stable or not stable? Um, 
am I craving dopamine because I'm actually tyrosine deficient, right? Like a lot of people don't even know that they've been under so much stress for so long that they actually can start down-regulating their own production of norepinephrine and, and dopamine. And you can actually measure this in homovanillic acid and um, vanilla vanilla acid. I can't pronounce these things very well. But you can actually measure these things and you can measure your cortisol. And these are decent markers for, am I completely burned out or not? Okay. So ask yourself, am I like seeking this dopamine because my body's actually burned out and deficient in what it needs? So I had a client who I put on about a gram of tyrosine because he was super low in these markers. And I put him on um, a, a supplement called Zembrin to balance out the dopamine because uh, it was because you're going to make more dopamine if you take tyrosine. And he calls me and, and we've made a bunch of changes in his health. And he goes, Molly, I feel amazing. And I was like, well, not only that, but we've like fixed a bunch of imbalances in your health. And I'll see it. He went through um, some changes in his relationships. And, and honestly, just like, where does your body need to be back brought into balance. Like, what is it in your biology that needs to be brought back into balance? Second thing I would actually say is the psychological frameworks, okay? So I'm just going to give you a quick class on how I think about the body. It's a a holistic model, but this is how I kind of assess my clients. Where do you have unresolved trauma, if you have any? Did you have, like, have you actually figured out your core wound? Do you know what happened in your childhood that changed everything for you? What was that that moment in your childhood that everything shifted? How were your relationships with your parents growing up? Did one of your boys or one of your parents absent? Was one of your parents anxious? Was one of your parents mentally ill? Did one of your parents abuse you? Did one of your parents neglect you? Figuring out your attachment style and figuring out your relationship with your parents and your family and your core wound, that changes your entire worldview of your existence. And so very importantly, if you need a therapist, you need to start digging into the, the narrative of your life. Narrative therapy, internal family systems, so important, so underutilized, and so valuable. Attachment, um, I read a textbook called Attachment um, Dysfunction in, in, in Adults Comprehensive Repair. And I read this, I read almost the whole thing, and I really basically came up with a summary of it. But it was like, oh my God, like, I can rewrite these the scripts I have around my parents and I can actually change my relationship to how I believe was a problem of my upbringing, which actually in reality was not that bad. Um, so dealing with your your relationship to your 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 family members, your community, your trauma, that is your like psychological task, okay? Like that is your job. You actually need to figure that out because that's gonna change the way that you react to all of your relationships. Yes. It's gonna, it's gonna change the way you have you date. It's gonna change the way you raise your own children. And if we don't, as a generation, learn to deal with these attachments and these dysfunctions, then we're going to be passing them on intergenerationally to our children and to their children. Third is your spiritual life. So a lot of people are are atheist, agnostic, um, or just don't believe in God. Um, I don't care if you believe in God at all. You need a sense of purpose. And work provides a sense of purpose for many people, not all people. A lot of people actually find a deep lack of purpose in their work. One of the most interesting things I learned going to Japan was that it's a culture where people find value in excellence and in mastery. Whether they are the cleaner of the toilet in the in the um, in the in the you know train station, or they are creating you know beautiful you know artisanal crafts or the best ramen in the world, most people in this culture really have a, a culture. There's a culture of mastery. You can have purpose. And like, there's a, there's a, there's a really beautiful talk, uh, a really beautiful, um, 
show on Netflix about this, this barbecue, this woman who does barbecue in Texas and is also the janitor of a high school. And she has just become a master of her craft. But she's also a janitor. And there's absolutely no shame in not being a CEO of a large tech company, okay? There's no shame in not being the president of America. There's no shame in not being successful in the world based on monetary or societal values. Like most people right now are finding purpose and meaning and value in social credit systems, like likes on Instagram, like numbers of publications, like all these different collaborators on different scientific projects, like how much money they raised for their company, like who they're dating. And even I fell into all of these surrogate purpose success markers that like don't actually, at the end of the day, like what do they really do? They actually are markers of how well you feel connected to your social community. (laughs) These are markers of, do I feel like people value me in my community? Do I feel connected to my community? Do I feel like I am accepted? Do I have esteem? You know, like esteem needs are part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but they are not necessarily our purpose in life. Our purpose is to like be human and connect and live and and exist and enjoy our lives and and have have like meaningful work and meaningful relationships, right? And a lot of people are struggling because there's a lot of people out of work without meaningful work, and there's a lot of people who don't have meaningful relationships. But spirituality, to me, has like been this breakthrough in my health. So I went through a massive spiritual awakening and be careful asking universe for a taste of enlightenment because it might kick you in the face with a awakening. And so I had a profound spiritual awakening that literally transformed my entire life, but led me to meditation because I didn't know how to handle all the energy that was flowing through me. I was like, literally like, I can't handle going outside in San Francisco and seeing the the pain and suffering of society and not being able to do anything about it. So I, I actually had to like, um, it was almost like the mo- like the moment where like, you know, the Buddha goes outside of his castle and he sees suffering in the world and he's like, shit, I can't be in, in a castle. I need to go out and help people. And then he goes out and, and lives the ascetic life. And then I actually did this whole thing where I just like went and started meditating and started like, I basically like put all my stuff in storage and basically gave up with some interest in material things. And I started living in Maui and I started just like sitting with myself and sitting with my discomfort and sitting with my shadow and sitting with all the parts of myself I didn't want to see. And I examined my ego and I kind of had to just sit back and ask myself, where are my priorities? Why am I not being fulfilled by, by all means what the world sees as a successful human? And I had to ask myself, well, what what is actually success? And why Why am I always striving for more? And like, what's really missing from my life? And I, I was lucky to meet this guru who I asked him, what is your secret to conscious wealth creation? And he goes, Molly, the more people you serve, the more money you make. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so it's service, actually. It's service that's the secret to happiness. It's service that's the secret to success. And service, it's actually dedicating yourself to, to like actually serving other people. And I realized I'd been serving myself. I had been living for myself. I'd been living a very selfish life where I wasn't helping that many people. And I was kind of like in this, this like world where I wasn't being fulfilled because I wasn't actually helping enough people that I, I didn't feel like I was helping enough people. And actually from what I'm learning now is even beyond this like desire to help a lot of people is this desire to be able to witness people for who they are in the moment and not try to change them. Like, like so much of real spiritual growth is letting go. And there's a phenomenal book that I recommend everyone read called Letting Go by Richard Hawkins, I believe. He was a physician who had a spiritual awakening. And he basically, like it's the last book he wrote, probably probably one of the most important books. 
because I discovered the power of letting go when I read the book and I go, cool. About an hour later, I was like, I'm just going to practice this letting go thing. And this happened in like November of last year. And I, and I go, I'm going to go visit my mom and dad. And I normally try to change them. And like, I normally try to tell them they need to do all these different things to be healthier. And I'm just going to give that up completely and just try to love them for who they are in this right now in this moment and just not try to change them at all. And just send my mom and dad love and just come and see them and just be like, I'm just going to love them and not try to change them. And an hour later, after I said that intention, I got a call from my mom who has never, ever once done this. And she goes, Molly, we've got some labs back from my doctor. I'd really like your help um, reviewing them. And I want your help with optimizing my health. And this is somebody who has been very resistant to any of my advice I've ever given her. And I literally, sh- I almost like the, almost dropped the phone because I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Person, I, I'm like, this is not my mom. Like, like my mom had never asked me for help before. And it was that moment of, holy shit, is there something truly magical about the process of letting go that can enable me to be a happier, more fulfilled person and have better relationships? And actually so much of the process of helping patients heal is listening to them and having them tell you about their health and just being curious and not necessarily trying to change them, but just being like, I'm going to hear what you have to say and I'm going to do my best to be present for what your experience is and I'm going to do my best to find you a solution. And I started doing this with my clients and it's been transformative. I've actually had clients literally heal problems without me doing anything for them by just listening to them, by just Mm -hmm. being present for them and caring about them and helping them and making them feel supported. And that's when I started getting interested in the placebo response because I was like, wait, holy shit, how come nobody is studying this? (laughs) Like, how come this isn't medicine yet? And I'm going to leave it with that because I'm actually just now kind of like entering this new space of the company and I'm really getting into the research behind this. But um, yeah, there's like, there's so much more power in, in healing than we realize and just being able to really understand where's our problem and how do I really start focusing on that one thing that I need? To, that's like the biggest lever improving my health. And it may be wearing a glucose monitor. It may be dealing with your family trauma. It may be actually examining your own ego and your orientation around what makes you happy. And, and if you can find that, that that thing, like that that area of your health that is so out of balance that everything else is being a reaction, then you might because like some some people are actually seeking dopamine because their blood sugar is all over the place and they're constantly trying to fix the fact that they're like not sure what's going on internally with their blood sugar. Some people are trying to get that dopamine because they just feel incomplete because they've never really had a secure relationship. Some people are seeking that dopamine because their work is not fulfilling and they're going, they're waking up every day having to pop out or all because they don't love what they do. That is a much more complex answer than I think you probably wanted. But that, this is the reality of health. Health is not that simple. But if you can break it down into its constituent components and really understand what's your root cause of your habitual behavior and desire for stimulation and reaction... Um, then you can you can hack it, and that's that's biohacking. I mean, that's mm. the beauty of health hacking. That's the beauty of health optimization. Is like you are a unique person with unique problems, and you can figure them out and get the, get help to figure them out if you know what it is that you need to figure out. You know, like that's really the secret is figuring out what is your issue underneath your behavior and focusing on that <clears throat> rat versus trying to fix the porn addiction. Right? Like the porn addiction is not the problem. The porn addiction yeah. is actually is actually a, a symptom of you not actually probably connecting with the opposite sex regularly and seeking like orgasm. I mean, honestly, like truth be told, 
any, everything I know about men who've mastered their sexuality has been watching men who've figured out Tantra and Taoist sexual practices that have everything to do with deprivation. Like, it's actually, I, I was talking to Aubrey Marcus and he was like, I am so much more attracted to my partner when I don't have an orgasm because I'm in the constant state of desiring. So I actually don't, I often don't have an orgasm specifically so I can desire more. And I was like, boom, my brain blew up. I was like, dude, you are a genius. Teach that to the men of the world. You know, like you, you made a really good point on this idea that like, maybe what people really need is to just sit with their desire and to let it be instead of react to it. And like, be present for it and just figure out what's underneath it. And then you can move through it. So amazing. Um, when you were talking about, so what two things, one thing I just wanted to reiterate that you said that I loved was this idea that like our job, like our job is to figure out what our core wound is and address it. Yeah. And I, <laughs> because fundamentally, we all just by living, you know, the birth process, childhood, just everything under, you know, yeah. being in a world where our brains weren't ready to fully process it, you know, yeah. that creates issues for everyone. And, and like, I feel like one of the most beautiful journeys of life can be to examine how that showed up in your world and then realize that so much of our maladaptive behavior and reactivity stems from that and that it's totally addressable, but is a job. Um, it takes a long time. And, you know, whether it's therapy or other modalities, um, there's so many, um, therapy being a great one. Like, I think it's, I just want to reiterate how powerful that process is. And I think for me personally, you know, one of the things that emerged from that, that work for me was this idea that you also talked about of controlling other people. And I actually think controlling other people can, I think there's a dopamine hit that comes in that too. Like, like you were talking about your parents and I'm in the Mm -hmm. same boat. I think Mm -hmm. being the type of physicians we are, it's, I think one of the early stages of that journey is that you kind of want to try and help everyone and be like, I figured this stuff out oh my and God, I know yes. how you can be better and da, 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 da. And then I don't know if this has been similar for you, but realizing that like the more you push, the more it pushes people away. And mm-hmm. that sometimes that letting go process exactly like you said is actually, it's just so important because you're giving that energy of control is toxic and not good for not it. it waking up to the fact that all the pushing and all the trying to control has never actually led to the outcomes I am deeply desiring. And that maybe flipping the script actually is better for everyone involved because of the different energy. No one wants to be controlled. Um, and, and I think that, um, it's, it goes back to your, the whole safety and threat thing. If we are feeling threat or fear, we want to control things. And so again, going back to root cause stuff, it's like, is it the threat and our fear that we're not addressing that's actually leading us to have some of these behaviors towards other people? Um, and that's one thing, you know, something I've thought about a lot is kind of the biggest fear out there, I think for most people is the ultimate fear of mortality. Like we are going to die. Like, and we, in the Western world, we kind of ignore that. We don't have a lot of curiosity about it. We don't have good frameworks for what that really means or is. Yeah. And it, and I really think the healthcare system weaponizes our fear of death to basically get us to do anything they want, like take any pill, do any procedure. Because if you can get people wow. petrified about mortality, yeah, Casey. get them to do anything. That you know? is a statement that I have never thought personally, but holy shit, that's a powerful fucking concept because my God, that is just, 
if you look at the system, God, that is just cruel to people, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 And I mean, I I think as you were talking about jobs to do. I think another job to do yeah. that is also deeply related to optimal health yeah. is examining death and overcoming our sense of existential fear about it and having radical acceptance for it. Because yeah. once you overcome that fear, you actually overcome a lot of other fears. Because even the relational stuff and tribe is ultimately about survival from death. Yeah. So like, and I think, you know, this has got me really interested, of course, in, you know, different, there are so many different um, schools of thought around mortality, from the Stoics to the Taoists sure. to, to the, you know, mystics and Sufi, um, yeah. you know, thinkers. There's so many and people have grappled with this, but going down those roads, learning about different conceptions of it. Yeah. And of course, the psychedelic movement, which I think can... And there's, it's not like that's the only path to a different perspective on death, but in some way it accelerates people, I think, having this sense that they've never had in their whole life, that they're not actually just here for this brief moment, that they're part of a continual eternal um, flow and process that is very much like a different conception than what we've thought about of the binary life and death. And yeah. all of that is just go back and say, like, there's something about the chronic disease epidemic, which if we have always talked about is very much rooted, I think, in hypervigilance and toxic fear and lack of relation and chronic loneliness. And then somewhere in there as well is our ultimate fear of mortality. And it's like, I don't actually believe we're going to fix some of these monumental health issues if we don't actually bring some of everything you're talking about and some of this also discussion around existential fears yeah. into the conversation. Because if you are scared, you are sick. Yes. Um, and so, I know. Yeah. but it's just so, it's so important. So I just, you know, I, I, mean, mean, I just, I, I have to say that I'm like, as much as I've been one of the biggest proponents of psychedelics, um, because I have taken pretty big risks with my own experimentation with psychedelics, I'm very, very lucky. I have not had a truly bad trip before. Aside from one time at Burning Man was this guy picked me up and shook me and screamed, I love you. And it was like really scary. Um, <laughs> besides that happening once, and I i mean, I was wearing a really hot outfit. So I don't, I, I kind of, in some ways, he was drunk. Can't really totally blame him, but he should really pick you up and shake you. However, I, I have definitely experienced um, what's called ego death multiple times now. And um I would not recommend people just go off and take 5-MeO-DMT or NNDMT or like a heroic dose of mushrooms in order to get over their fear of death. However, it has helped me personally. <laughs> it's very dangerous. Like about 5 five to 10% of people who do large doses of psychedelics actually have trauma, like PTSD from mm -hmm. trauma. Not necessarily PTSD, but they actually have <coughs> trauma from the experience being uh, like they were unprepared for it. Part of why I'm building this company is I actually think we might be able to figure out how to screen people for these adverse um, type of experiences and trips. I actually think that there's a way to establish an understanding of how to create a perfectly safe environment, safe mindset, and safe drug tr drug experience so that people can experience ego death. But right now we're in the infancy of this movement. And so a lot of people are doing it haphazardly underground with with, with shamans and fake uh, therapists with that actually aren't trained. And so they're going off trying to like conquer their fears of death. They're trying to like, get, you know, they're trying to like heal their trauma. 
And actually, there's a lot of re-traumatization happening to people. So I just want to like give a massive disclaimer that like, even though psychedelics have helped helped me overcome my own personal fear of death, uh, they most definitely have caused people to have even bigger fears of uh, all sorts of things. So that I, I, it's really important to have that disclaimer. But that being said, there will be probably a time in our lifetime where we have, I, I would say it's not going to be overnight, but there's going to be a time in our lifetime where you will probably be able to get medicine for helping you come to terms with your fear of death. And there are mm. companies that are studying uh, end-of-life anxiety. It turns out that it's not a diagnosis because it's not considered a pathology, but it's almost a, it's like a perface. It's, it, the problem is, is that so many people experience it. So it really can't be a disease if everybody has it, they say. Right. Now, that being said, um, I do think that, uh, I do think that like psychedelics are not the answer for everybody. For sure. I've seen people on de- death's door with cancer and they def- psychedelics did not fix their fear of death. And in fact, yeah. um, they still died very much in fear. However, um, the key to being able to come to terms with death is to actually learn how to live in a way that enables you to actually, frankly, just like, like this, this book called, like this book called Journey to Ixlan by Carlos Castaneda. And like, if you can look at death as like this thing that's on the, like, on that, like, like your peripheral vision to your left, like always in your peripheral vision, if you can actually look at death, like it's always there next to you, waiting for you, you become a kind of accustomed to the reality that like, oh yeah, I'm going to die. Like, and death's right there. Like, like could happen like right there. And that book was something that I think really changed my perspective of death because I was like, oh, so I don't have to just like occasionally be terrified of death, but I can actually think about it pretty consistently enough. And I'm like, oh, this is like part of my life. Now, my now problem from that is like, because I'm not afraid of death anymore, I have this deep sense of impatience because I'm like, holy shit, I know exactly how much time I have left. And I, I, have, a, I have a deep sense I'm probably going to die in my mid-90s. And sadly, that's just my reality. I'm like pretty, pretty like much know that I'm probably going to go somewhere, somewhere in my mid to late 90s. And so because of that, I'm like, okay, how many years do I have left? And what do I need to accomplish in this period of time? And like, and I have this, I was talking to this guy and he's like, wow, your biggest fear is that you're running out of time. And it's not that you're afraid of death. You're like, you're fine with dying. You're just like not fine with running out of time in this life. And it's like, that is something that I'm working on myself is like, I'm really trying to work with like, what is this internal impatience about? And what is it that I'm running? Like, why do I feel like there's such a limited amount of time? And so one of the consequences of fearing, of not fearing death is like, you just start getting this deep sense of agency that you know you're going to die. And so you have to spend your life as much as possible, not asleep. You want to spend your life awake and like you want to do, and like, as a result, I think it's, it's funny because like this guy was like, you know, you have the, you have the desire to accomplish what six people would accomplish in typically their own individual lives, you know? And I was like, yeah, I know (laughs) it's, it's not, it's not necessarily healthy, I think, um, to be, to have the sense of running out of time. But I do think that, um, it's just another area that I could focus on working on letting go, mm-hmm. you know, it's another area that I can just work. Okay. So like, how do I let go of that urgency? How do I let go of that sense of running out of time? How do I, I mean, it's really hard if you're in the startups, startup world, cause you're like, this is the culture of you're running out of time. <laughs> You've got deadlines. You got to move faster. Um, however, I do think that, um, I do think that like, if you can 
just let yourself kind of think about life in a more gentle way and like, okay, so like, okay, I'm going to die. What if, if I, if I actually realize that I'm going to die tomorrow, like potentially tomorrow or in 10 years, how can I live my life differently? Like, what would I be doing differently? And so one of the things that really got me motivated around building a company around relationships and health, specifically the, the interactions of relationships with health, is I realized that um, healthy relationships could extend my life potentially 12 years. And that social disconnection was a bigger driver of disease than smoking, drinking, sedentary behavior, or obesity. And I was like, oh, great. This is something I could sink my teeth into. This is something that could actually be useful to people. And um, and yeah, like I think... I think it's just the key the key to accepting your death is actually while you're alive, recognizing that you need to make priorities. You actually need to prioritize certain things like your relationships. You actually need to prioritize <clears throat> the things that are going to bring you real joy. And you, and you do need to wake up. I mean, I had a, a DMT trip many, many years ago and I basically resigned from my job a month later because I was like, I can't work in this environment because I'm not living, I'm living for other people's desire for me to become a certain person. And that person that I'm becoming is not who I really want to be. And so you don't need drugs to come to that conclusion. You can just sit with yourself and ask yourself, if I were living my life any differently than I am right now, how would I be living it if it was if I was living a life that would bring me true fulfillment, that would bring me real more more joy and 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 more meaning, frankly. And and you got and these are personal questions you have to ask yourself. Yeah. You know? I love that. Um I just want to make one comment and then I want to ask you a final question because sure. I know we're going so long here and yeah. uh, I'll end on a lighter note. But um, I think just two things that you were saying while you were talking, I think <clears throat> one is this like having death right next to you as this friend that you're kind of, you know, curio- curious about, not this like thing that you just don't think about. And it's like this scary amorphous thing. Um, one thing I I like loved in medical school, you know, was learning about just the concept that like we're dying every day and it, the idea of like, final death, like we're constantly, like we're talking about earlier, recycling with the environment and hundreds of millions of cells dying every day. And we don't even, because we don't even really learn about biology very well. We don't even realize that. We don't even realize that like the body we are today has, the body we had 10 years ago has fully died. Like literally, I don't know for a fact that every atom and every cell is gone, but probably the majority of it is. And we turned over. Yeah. We literally, um, eat a metric ton of food per year. And where does that go? Uh, well, it goes with waste and death of cells. And it's like, one thing that's crazy is like, that I think people don't even realize is that from the moment we're conceived, we're actually dying. Our hands in utero were paddles and with no fingers and cell death is what causes our fingers. Our ear canals were plugs and cell death leads to an ear canal. And like, so this is just part of life. We're part of this continual it's just the end, what we're really yeah. scared of, I think is end of consciousness, but we don't even really have any understanding of, of that anyways. And so the idea, something that's very comforting to me is, is meditating on the idea that I, death is absolutely part of everything yeah. I'm doing and living. And the second thing I just wanted to comment on, I just finished a great book called 4,000 Weeks, yeah. um, which is really good about, you know, our short period of time here. Um, yeah. If we're lucky, we have 4,000 weeks. Um, and, and he was saying, you know, there's, you know, you could have two different realities. You could be a type of person who travels to five, you know, fi- yeah. 50 different countries and who's constantly on the move and doing so much stuff. But if you are not present and you are not actually focused on what you're doing, then it's not like you actually had any of those experiences at all. And yeah. versus if you are have a short life, but you are 
fully awake and experiencing it, who lived more life? And we all know yeah. that feeling of like having a full day, but you were distracted. There were emails, you were on your phone, you were stressed about something, you were anxious, you were thinking about a breakup, whatever. And you're not there. So like what is, so, so, you know, that, that yeah. gets to the, the main point here, which is that presence, you know, yeah. being present and experiencing the life that you're living Get more is like such an antidote to, I think the anxiety, because, um, we can let weeks go by without fully living. And so the, the waking up concept, I think is, is that you sort of talked about, I think is kind of the crux of like a lot of this. Um, and I think we all know that when we're truly present, you know, the phone is down, we're actually connecting, even feeling someone else's energy. Like those are the good days. Like those are the days that we did something with our body. We felt our body, we, all these things. Um, so yeah, God, I would just love to talk about this with you like all day, oh, but, uh, but I just, I, I, I want to end on a much lighter note than death, sure. which is um, <clears throat> to talk a little bit about, um, honestly, just pick your brain about skin because sure. we know that the body is one big thing. It's all connected and skin is the, like the largest organ in our body and, you know, very much related to metabolic health. You have the most beautiful radiant skin of literally anyone I've ever met in person. And Aww. so I know people will love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on like, you know, how do we have the healthiest, most vibrant, radiant skin? What are the environmental factors that are like potentially hurting this? Sure. And um, yeah, just kind of like general. Well, some, some it's funny. You're, funny you mentioned that because I went on this trip and I ate, the, the food was covered in vegetable oil. And I am, I unfortunately have like a very sensitive liver, I think, because if I eat just any like excess vegetable oil or sugar, I get breakouts on my back and I started breaking out all over my back. And I was so embarrassed on this trip because I was like, holy crap, like what is happening to me? My face looked okay. I did get a nice sit last week on my head, but I don't normally break out that bad anymore because I figured out that a lot of it has to do with my digestion and my food and my insulin sensitivity. And so what happened was, is I went on this trip and I went from eating fairly low carb to eating dessert for like two to three meals, like literally having dessert and like lunch and dinner and like- It's a cruise ship and they just have it everywhere. There was yeah. like Nutella on this really good gluten-free bread. There's, there's this new kind of Nutella that was made by somebody on Stranger Things, TBH or something. It's delicious. It's got less sugar, but it's still, you know, <laughs> I'll grab the sugar for a serving. And I'm eating all this sugar and there's all these vegetable oil and the vegetables. And I'm like, my skin is breaking out. And I was like, I'm just telling everyone that like, you may see this today, but this was not me like a week ago when I had a zit on my face and I had, um, and I had a break on my back. And, and what happens when you eat the wrong fuel is specifically sugar in particular, is it causes insulin spikes. And not only that, but I was, there was a fair amount of dairy on the, on the ship, but I don't really eat a lot of dairy normally. And I hadn't been eating dairy. So I was eating dairy, which causes insulin, um, IGF-1 signaling. And then I was eating sugar, which was causing, um, actually, I believe sugar may lower adiponectin, which increases um, increases potentially growth signaling in cells. There's like a few different pathways that cause this, but basically like insulin signaling is enhanced by sugar consumption. And um, it also contributes to like mTOR signaling and growth of, of cells. Like there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of... Um, increased androgen production when you eat a lot of extra sugar if you're insulin, like if you have insulin resistant. So there's like these two pathways, two or three pathways, insulin, adiponectin, and mTOR signaling that can happen when you eat 
too much carbohydrate. And I was eating a lot more sugar than I normally eat. And as a result, my skin started to break out like I was a teenager again. And I was like, this sucks. I'm so embarrassed. And I like didn't want to go in the sauna because I was like, people are going to see my back broken out. And it was really embarrassing. But I think it's important for people to realize that like, if I was wearing a blood sugar monitor, I could have totally seen all this food and what it was doing to me. And, in, and instead, I was like, just kind of doing, you know, you got to have fun on vacation, but you got to understand there's going to be consequences, especially for a physical system that's pretty highly tuned. So normally, like what basically fixed my skin after years of trouble was um, lowering my insulin. And so eating a lower insulin output diet cause like with less sugar, less refined starch and less dairy was like a huge, huge shift in my skin health. Like first and foremost, when you don't glycate your skin as much, also you get less wrinkles and you have more autofluorescence. So your skin actually does cause, there's this thing called skin autofluorescence. And it's literally the amount of light that's coming out of your skin, right? And they use this as a measurement tool for diabetics. And I wanted to buy one of these measurement tools once, but it turns out they're very expensive. <laughs> so I discovered that if you want to like cause less cooking of your skin, because basically your metabolism is slowly cooking you over time. If you want to cook your skin less, you got to eat less kindling and carbs are kindling, okay? So they burn really fast and then they glycate your cells and they cause all sorts of oxidative stress bursts, which cause stiffness in your arteries and age you faster. So this is one of the biggest things that I learned wearing a glucose monitor for like, since 2014 was like, oh, if I eat lots of sugar, I am going to actually cause my skin to break out. I'm going to have less light coming out of my skin. I'm going to have more wrinkles. So that's aging right there for you. You're basically aging yourself by cooking yourself too fat, too too hot. So um, that's one thing. Another thing that was happening on the ship that I don't normally do is I was eating all day long. I was eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner and large meals for each of them. And that just is a larger insulin output because you're just eating more food. So if you want to have better skin, you probably as an adult, as a physical adult, unless you are an athlete and you are burning like thousands and thousands of calories a day, you don't need, especially if you're sedentary, you don't need three big meals a day. You need probably one big meal and two small meals or one or two regular sized meals or like, but you don't need to be eating as much as you're eating, okay? Most people are eating just too much fuel. And so their bodies are like always metabolizing. And my skin looks best when I don't eat like lower yeah. amounts of food. Yeah. Um, I just look healthier. My skin just glows more. Um, fitness is a big one for me. I look and feel more energetic when I do exercise. And today I rode my bike to the gym, did a 20 mm. minute weightlifting workout and rode my bike back. And that was about six miles of bike riding and 20 minutes of, of heavy lifting. And, you know, it took me about an hour and a half, but I don't do that workout every day, but man, do I enjoy those workouts. And if I had been I was riding with my mom and so I'm visiting her right now. And if I was riding on my own, I would probably get that down to an hour because I can ride real fast. But if you're with people, sometimes it slows down. Key is, is that like, I, you know, tomorrow morning I have to get up and I have to be somewhere by 9.15 and it's going to take me about an hour to get there. So I have to get up earlier to go on a run and I have to just think about my day tomorrow. But exercise, like when I started doing more cardio on top of weightlifting and doing both, like there's all these people who are like, oh, you don't need to do any cardio if you're a weightlifter. Screw that you'll look healthier if you get more oxygen into your skin. You just look better. You got to oxygenate your skin. Oxygen is life. Um, mm. And then there's always micronutrients, okay? So yes. very, 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 very important is you got to get your micronutrients dialed and your phytonutrients. Vi yes. Micronutrients and phytonutrients. Minerals are important. Vitamins are important. Phytonutrients are important. So you want to get all your minerals and, and your micronutrients, but you also want to get your phytonutrients. You want to get all the colors. 
So I actually um, became the spokesperson of this company called uh, Neurohacker. They have, a, they have a product called Qualia Skin. Mm. And they literally hassled me for many, many months. And they were like, you have to be our spokesperson. And I was like, look, guys, I don't really need your supplement. And then I started traveling and I started taking their supplement because I was living in a hotel for a few months in Austin and I wasn't eating enough vegetables. And I was like, all right, I will give you guys a chance. I'll take your supplement for a month and we'll see what happens. So I took their supplement and it has a lot of red pigmented um, like fruits in it. And so it's got pomegranate, it's got like amla fruit, and it's got all these carotenoid rich fruits. And I saw my skin was getting like a rosier glow. And I was like, okay, you guys, I know what you're doing here. You're, you made a supplement that increases carotenoids and carotenoids increase rosiness in your skin. And that's why I look so much younger. And so um, I actually had a, I had a few slides in one of my lectures on food for my, my course at Stanford on how carotenoids actually make you appear more attractive to the opposite sex. And there's actually research that like you, you give people more carotenoids, their skin glows more because they have a rosier glow. It's not rocket science. I don't necessarily think you have to take a supplement to be, have great skin. In fact, eating red fruits is a great option. But for me, I was traveling. I wasn't getting enough fruits and vegetables while I was living in a hotel. And so sometimes a supplement can actually be a nice surrogate. But it's definitely like, you know, obviously it's like an adaptation to a, a lifestyle that I've chosen to be a nomad. Um, I still eat a lot of raspberries. And today I had acai and strawberries and raspberries. And I've, you know, and I also love the supplement Qualia Skin. Um, the reason why it's also really useful is there's, there's a lot of minerals in it from Koji. So minerals are really important for skin health too, because they modulate hormone production and, um, and collagen, you need enough vitamin C for collagen. So that's important. So, um, other important things about skin is exfoliation. You have to exfoliate your top layer of your skin. And I use mitts on my hands for my whole body. And I use, um, like topical, like, you know, I use like a, there's this company called Disco. They make a good, um, Oh yeah. They make a good like me- mechanical um, exfoliator, but there's mechanical and chemical exfoliators. So vitamin C and alpha hydroxy acids, beta hydroxy acids are going to use um, acids to remove the top layer of your skin. But then mechanical helps you actually move move the like the actual uh, epidermis off. So moisturization is really important, and but and, and sunscreen is really important. So. I learned the hard way this summer by not wearing enough sunscreen on my body. And I actually aged my body's skin pretty significantly. Fortunately, I've reversed a lot of it through large amounts of vitamin C and lots of exfoliation and lots of um, moisturization. But the key is you wanted to have turnover. So turnover enables you to have this this nice, fresh layer of skin exposed. Um, And then I'd say that that's really, I mean, sunscreen, exfoliators, moisturizers, those are really the things that I focus on. I, I'm not really currently doing retinol right now. I, I should probably pick it up again, but I, I just haven't haven't. So um, those are really my biggest secrets. I'd say it's <laughs> like you know I, I don't use that many skin products. Although companies yeah. constantly send me skin products, I don't really use that many. I use sunscreen, moisturizer, eye cream, um, and like and like ex- exfoliator. You know, yeah. that's typically what I use. Oh, such good tips. I mean. I'm of the camp having had dealt with some really bad skin issues, really bad jawline acne until like my mid twenties. Um, that I think that the food and the lifestyle stuff is probably in my mind personally, 90 to 95%. I would battle. And like what you're putting in the body. Right. And like that, that the skincare is maybe the 5%. I say for sure. I would take Botox out of that category because yeah. I think that that does a lot. But um, but I think that in terms of actual skin quality and 
like acne and things like that. Like for me in my personal life, it's been 90, 95% what's going in my body and lifestyle. The liver, by the way. So do not underestimate the liver and the gut because um, I, so this is really important for travelers. I travel a lot and it causes a lot of gut dysfunction. And I regularly have to deal with SIBO issues because Mm. I am traveling and I'm disrupting my, my, my circadian rhythms and my food. And I, I'm ready to buy a house and just like settle down somewhere. I'm actually like finally at a point where it's been years nomadic. And I'm like, this is not this last year. Well, actually I was nomadic, but I was more stable in 2020. 2021, I was full on traveling. And I ended up getting SIBO like twice. And it's like, you have to understand the gut skin relationship oh. is not to be overlooked. And if you have a large liver burden and if you have a weak, like my, my liver tends to be a little bit more sluggish than the average person. Anytime I get on planes and I'm regularly exposed to jet fuel and I get on an improper diet and I've got a bigger toxic burden, I get more jawline. I, mm. I'll break out on my back. And it's like, it's hormonal because you Definitely. need to have a healthy gut to have healthy hormones. And most people don't understand that relationship between the gut, the liver, the hormones and the skin. Right. And that's really, I mean, that was really one of the biggest breakthroughs, but it's hard to do that if you're traveling a lot because you're getting exposed to chemicals, you're getting exposed to a lot of jet fuel. Because like people don't realize this, when you, every time you board a plane, you're breathing in all the fumes that are around that plane. Every time you're driving in cars and big cities, you're breathing in all these fumes. So your toxic burden does play a role as well in your skin health. And so a lot of people I see in cities have this pallor and we'll never forget going to Beijing. And Beijing, all these people will just look sick. And I was like, wow, this air quality is so disgusting that people cannot breathe. Like your skin can't breathe. So um, watch your skin in different environments and notice how it looks in certain environments versus others. Some people are just going to be better adapted to certain environments than others. And personally, I do best when I'm in nature. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's been removal of dairy getting insulin and sugar down and tons of fiber and phytonutrients. So exactly what you said. I mean, if I, I'm so sensitive to the dairy and sugar that for, in terms of acne, that, um, if I have a podcast or a media appearance coming up and I know I'm going to have to be publicly facing for at least 10 days beforehand, I will make sure that there is no dairy in anything that I eat and make sure that my blood sugar spikes are lower because it's one-to-one for me. And I will get it. I will use it. Yeah. Any sugar zits, you know? So, so anyways, that's the message there. It is definitely a, 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 if if you're dealing with skin issues, um, and it's certainly not just acne, it's of course also like inflammatory skin conditions, um, getting some of this simple stuff dialed in fiber, phytonutrients, low sugar, low insulin. And for some people who are sensitive dairy, because dairy does drive, like you said, IGF one, um, and insulin, both of which, I mean, this mechanism, I just always think is so fascinating literally stimulate the cells of the sebaceous gland, the oil producing gland of the hair follicle to make it bigger and produce more oil. So it's usually like, a, but it's just crazy. So um, it's all science for the end of the day. If you want good skin, if you want to get skin, you need to put a, a, a levels blood sugar monitor on. You need to start seeing these blood sugar spikes because if you don't see them, you don't really accept that what you're eating is causing the problem. Right. And it's like, I actually need to get more sensors because if I don't see these spikes, I start falling into, oh, I'll just have a little bit of that in my crate, in my coffee. You know, I'll just do a little bit of that dessert. And before you know it, you become addicted again. And it's amazing how one week on on this boat and I was like full on every meal, sugar, 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 sugar. And I broke it 
But then I had to start taking all these herbal antibiotics and like, and, and it's funny because I got a UTI for the first time ever. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's might've been all the sugar I consumed. Pretty sure, yep. you know? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I was just telling you before the episode, like I um, have this upper respiratory thing going on. I've muted myself like several times during this episode and been coughing. And it's like, I, it's no surprise to me. I actually knew it was coming because I was in LA for a week. I was at a bunch of events and things like that, kind of eating the kitchen sink. And I'm like, I'm going to get sick, you know? So it's just, none of this is to say that like, you know, some things just happen, but I think it's good to remember that a lot of this is in our control. And And I remember that (laughs) where we are now versus where we were when we were younger, like I got sick all the time. I was a sickly child, right? I didn't have good skin. I had all sorts of hormone dysfunction. Like we are who we are today because we decided that we were going to change our lifestyle based on information and science and that science works. (laughs) Now, the challenge is being in an environment that is not actually like that you are different. You're going to have to be different than most people. But the benefit of being different than most people is you have more radiance. And like... Mm. This girl um, I'm friends with, this wonderful human, she emails me and she goes, I just want you to know I had a dream about you and you were literally fluorescent. And I was like, wow, what a cool dream that like people think that I admit that much light that I'm a fluorescent human now. Well, that's why I had to ask you about your skin. You do really glow. And um, I think that that is just a testament to everything you're doing and thinking about. And um, you said in the episode that service is the secret to happiness. And I think that you coming on and spending two hours of your time talking publicly about stuff like this is such an incredible form of service. And you're sharing what you've thought about. You had to spend thousands of hours of your life alone, thinking, ruminating, reflecting, writing, synthesizing, and sharing that is such a service. And so I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you. I can't wait for this to come out. Okay. Last thing, where can people find you? Oh, find me at uh, on Instagram at drmolly.co at drmolly.co. Um, you can also find me um, at www.drmolly.co. Um, and then let's see here. I've, I'm on Instagram. I already told, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Molly Maloof MD, Twitter, Molly Maloof MD. And, um, and my website is Adamo Bioscience, A-D-A-M-O-B-I-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com. So find me in all those different places, but Instagram is probably the best place. Instagram or Twitter. Awesome. 